I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll follow up on the impacts of the Suez Canal blockage. Plus, we'll discuss the pending Biden decision on an ITC fight over batteries and what the future of electric vehicles looks like. And the trade guys discuss the WTO's role in the COVID vaccine rollout and react to a recent Gallup poll on U.S. trade views. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, it is good to be with you today, and we've got to put some closure on one of my favorite stories of all time, and I know it's one of your favorite stories of all time, the Suez Canal backup. Now, I would say, like, look, you know, maybe we shouldn't have given the Suez Canal back to Egypt and we wouldn't have had this problem, but that's probably not the answer. You're right. And look, it's been there for a long time. It wasn't us, the <laughs> Americans, who built it in the first place. It built in 1869, right. I think, or something like that. So It's old. Yeah, we didn't have much involvement in it. But uh, having said that, the sideways nature of the ship the Ever Given was kind of hilarious for a few days. But it generated a lot of questions and it generated a lot of disruption in uh, global commerce. It just goes to show how important the steady flow of trade is, particularly maritime trade, which is roughly 80% of goods trade is on the water. These choke points can have a big impact. And what we found out is it seems kind of mundane. There was a lot of stuff on these these ships that, that got delayed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of containers that are late. And it was everything from from granite to pharmaceutical precursors to auto parts. Problematic. For somebody, fortunately. Yeah. Uh, both, both, probably for both Holland and the uh, Chinese consumers. And for, for India, you know, as you mentioned, Scott, the pharmaceutical, really a problem. There were 641 containers packed with beer from the Netherlands on their way to China. So, you know, look, Chinese beer is really good. Sing Tsao is really good. But like you can't beat the beer from the Netherlands. It's second probably only to Germany, right? Right. And uh, that demonstrates why the Suez Canal is so important, because it, it's two weeks closer to go through the Suez Canal to, from Holland to Asia than it is to go around the Cape of Good Hope. So there, there was a big disruption, but it'll work its way out. Bill talked last week about the, the snake that swallows the rat. It's going to be a big lump for a while, and it, eventually it'll, the backups get get resolved and digested. But uh, it's also one of the amazing things about modern commerce is there's so much visibility of what what container is where at any point in time due to modern technology. So I think supply chain managers have a lot uh, easier time than they would have 50 or 100 years ago, but trade's a lot more complicated than it was 50 or 100 years ago. A lot more uh, intermediate goods, so things to make other things are in transit. Yeah, it really is a schlep if you have to go all the way down to the yep. Horn of Africa to the Cape of Good Hope, not to mention the water there is extremely rough and dangerous. And so, you know, the Suez Canal is where it's at. I kept thinking the whole time that the vessel was stuck about my favorite children's book that I read to all my sons, Truck is Stuck. And I just kept thinking about that the whole time. <laughs> Pretty much. 
<laughs> so maybe somebody will do a children's book, you know, uh, cargo ship is stuck now. I, I, I don't know. Well, it was a combination of maritime ingenuity and a, a full moon that, that wound up getting the thing off the rocks and moving again. So now, could this kind of thing happen in the Panama Canal? I mean, the Panama Canal expanded a couple of years ago and has a much bigger, newer waterway. But it, it, you could see that happening in our hemisphere, couldn't you? It is possible. It's less likely in the Panama Canal, given the way it's designed, given that there are duplicate locks. But once again, ship sizes keep getting larger. That's the reason the Panama Canal locks were enlarged. Right. Is because the, the container ships keep getting bigger and bigger, and the waterways, the pathways don't get bigger. In fact, in the case of the Suez Canal, the silting is, is a constant problem. I mean, I've been to the Panama Canal, and you look at it, and you just can't believe that these ships fit through. If you watch them go into the locks, and, uh, you know, there's maybe, uh, you know, a foot on each side to spare. Right. And there's a long line. Oh, yes. Yeah. As there is at the port of Long Beach and Los Angeles, as we talked a few weeks back. So uh, uh, Goods Trade is, is, uh, has returned to its sort of normal levels. There's a lot of it. And uh, congestion is going to be an ongoing issue for the maritime industry. And then a disruption like this just adds to everybody's problems. So glad to see it's resolved and uh, just wanted to put a button on that uh, particular discussion. I've been talking to an old friend who's working with somebody who's invented a smart container. And it's just fascinating. It's a container that keeps track of and lets you know where it is and what's inside and what the temperature is inside if you're carrying stuff that's supposed to be refrigerated. It's sort of like, a you know, it allows you to maintain sort of a keep track of a chain of ownership. If anybody tampers with the container, uh, you'll find out about it. Interesting concept. It is indeed. You know what's another interesting concept, changing gears a bit? There's this ITC battery case that I know both of you are chomping at the bit to discuss. What is going on with this thing? It's a pretty complex issue. The issue combines issues of supply chain vulnerabilities, climate change, the future of of electric vehicles, intellectual property rights, American jobs, geopolitical threats from China, all of this in one set of issues. So what's going on with this, guys? And, And what is the President Biden's plan. I think his plan uh, is to try to force a settlement uh, between the contending parties because that will get that will get him off the hook and he won't have to make a decision. Otherwise, he's in a difficult situation, as you pointed out, because it raises a bunch of issues. I mean, at its core, it, it's a dilemma that has come up before, which is you know there's a bunch of rules, and this is a this is a fight between two companies. It's not a fight between. Uh, the government and a company, but uh, two companies, and one company accused the other of breaking the rules, uh, in this case, intellectual property rules. And uh, the defendant company, if you will, lost the case. It went to the International Trade Commission, which decides these things. And they lost, I think you could probably say they kind of lost on a technicality. The ITC, Administrative Law Judge, and then the full commission concluded that uh, essentially the defendant company had defaulted because it had destroyed evidence, the evidence relating to whether or not they had stolen information, technical information from the other company. Uh, and because they had, uh, the ITC determined that because they had destroyed the information, they were in default. And the remedy in these cases is, is an import ban. Uh, so this is a company that makes batteries. And uh, in fact, is going to make batteries in Georgia. Uh, is already has one plant there, as I recall, and plans to build another one. 
This is not an American company versus a Korean company. This is two Korean battery companies fighting each other, one accusing the other of stealing its trade secrets. The commission sided with the complainant uh, over the defendant. Uh, and the way it works is once the commission makes a decision, the president has 60 days to overrule them if he wants to. Uh, that's happened only once in recent memory. Obama did it in 2013 in a case involving uh, Samsung and Apple. Uh, and the issues there were, were kind of the same. You know, the, the argument on the one side is there are rules and the rules were broken. Uh, the argument on the other side is, well, we didn't do it. But, you know, beyond that, the argument, since they lost that argument, the argument is, yeah, but what we're doing is really important to the economy. You know, and if you punish us, uh, it's really going to hurt a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and so what the battery company is, is saying is that the losing company is saying that, well, we may not be able to build our plant, our second plant in Georgia. We're not going to be able to sell our batteries. The commission gave them essentially a, um, a four year grace period and a two year grace period. They've got contracts with Ford and VW to sell them uh, batteries for electric car, cars, electric vehicles. And the commission gave them a grace period. I think four for Ford and two for VW, I think is the way it worked out to, um, basically to allow the car companies to, you know, to make other arrangements. The car companies are not happy. They say that's not long enough. The losing battery company is unhappy. They say they won't be able to build the plant. It'll cost jobs in Georgia. So I'm sure you talk to the governor of Georgia. He'll, you know, defend the plant. The winning company has a plant in Michigan. Uh, and of course they say the arguments are all phony that uh, they, you know, the, the losing company is not really going to pull out of a multi-billion dollar investment. Uh, and besides, the winning company has got capacity and they can supply batteries. And the fight goes on. The dilemma for the president is, you know, on the one hand, he supports uh, intellectual property protection. He supports strong rules protecting IP. We've been very critical of other countries, particularly China, which is not central to this case because these are Korean companies, but we've been very critical of the Chinese for stealing IP. The allegation here, which was not really settled, but the allegation is the same thing. On the other hand, this is the climate president. Uh, and this is the president that wants to convert the country to electric vehicles. And uh, if there's a, you know, a choke point in the electric vehicle conversion, it's probably going to be batteries. And uh, the uh, Korean, the losing Korean company uh, we'll probably argue that if we're not there in the mix, we're going to have a battery shortage. And that means we're going to be buying our batteries from China. And is that really what we want to do? You know, th this is a, this is one of these cases. That it's hard to get your arms around because, first of all, it's a trade secrets case. And among all the air elements of an intellectual property law, trade secrets are the ones that, that's, that are sort of the, the least able to get your hands around them. If you have a dispute over a patent... The patents are actually published documents. You can analyze them. You can have experts just determine whether there's infringement. Same with copyrights and trademarks to, to a lesser extent. But trade secrets are basically what people know. And it, often trade secrets walk out the door of the building, of the, the R&D building every evening and go home to their families, or they quit one company and get hired by another. And so trade secrets are quite fungible and difficult to pin down. That's why the destruction of evidence was a key element in the case, uh, is because there, there isn't much trail of, uh, of evidence when it comes to things like know-how. So that's number one. Number two, the ITC process is pretty fast, which is why companies like to use it. Using the trade statutes and an administrative law judge 
is a lot faster way than to get a, a clear decision on an IP case than would, say, federal courts, which take a lot more time, a lot more lawyers, a lot more expense, everything involved. Now, in federal court, a trade secrets case, the incentives are toward a settlement just because it's expensive for everybody to litigate. But here you have yet a relatively low cost to get to the decision of the administrative law judge. Now there are incentives for settlement, but but the case has been decided and it doesn't really have a straightforward appeal now except to the president. So I still think that ultimately this is a case that will settle. It won't settle as easily as it would have prior to a uh, an administrative law decision. But there's probably a settlement in there somewhere. But but it will, it'll have a spectacle associated with it because of the interest in electric vehicles, the importance of batteries to the electric vehicle operations, and the uh, the overall sort of national security dimensions of of uh, anything related to uh, to uh, climate friendly vehicles. All right, can I can I ask a dumb question here? Sure. That's what you're here for, Andrew. It's all right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you don't ask so them, never... we, we have to ask the dumb questions. Come on. <laughs> Give me a break. Okay. All right. So so if this is such a huge roadblock for President Biden's plan to jumpstart the electric vehicle market in the United States, why can't we make our own batteries? Why do, why do we need Korean companies and Chinese companies to make EV batteries for us. Why, why isn't there some ambitious American entrepreneur like, say, Elon Musk or somebody like that making a killing on batteries and we don't need a supply chain from elsewhere or even a, a company setting up plants in Commerce, Georgia and Michigan? I mean, th- there are a lot of jobs associated with this foreign, you know, with Korean companies. They've got 2,600 workers uh, in, in Georgia already, and they want to start another one. But why aren't, they, why aren't we making our own? I think we are, is the answer. I mean, Elon Musk does have a battery production facility under construction in Texas. Uh, so so there, there is innovation. Just not enough and not fast enough? Is that, is that what it is? Well, there's innovation going on in a lot of companies, much as Samsung and Apple both make smartphones. Much as, as as Google and Apple both provide the software for smartphones, there's competition in the marketplace. These companies will continue to compete and innovate. And presumably, there are enough differences. It'll be every bit as different as a Toyota is from a, from a Chevrolet today. So there's room in the market for competition. There's a lot that has to change to get to electric vehicles. You got to start with uh, how many power generating plants there are and the capacity for charging, then charging stations than the batteries themselves. Uh, maybe the easiest part are, are the cars because internal combustion engine has about 2,000 parts and electric motor has about 20 parts. So there's some, there's some simplification as you go along, but there's a lot of steps in between, including battery development and battery production that will have to be taken into account to make a radical change. Keep in mind, I think roughly 2% of, uh, of vehicles on the road today are electric powered. I mean, my dad drives a Tesla and he, I think he does this because he likes doing it, but he lives in Chevy Chase and he drives all the way up to Rockville Pike to this specific garage where he likes charging his car because it's a high speed Tesla charger or something like that. And, you know, he has one at his place on the Eastern shore, but like, I I don't know. I mean, it's still pretty complicated to get your, your electric car charged. Well, there's, that infrastructure is not as as developed 
as say the infrastructure for gasoline stations, which are on which are all over the country and quite convenient. Yeah. So so yeah. there's there's a ways to go, and and certainly there are different kinds of charging that are faster than others. Uh, if he's only got 110 volts, typical household electric uh, circuit in his home, that's a slow charge versus what uh, what a, a, a commercial charger would be, and it may be free in that parking garage he goes to too, which may be the incentive. Oh yeah, I think that's got something to do with it. <laughs> It's more complicated than that. Yes. My neighbor has a Tesla, and most houses have uh, one, uh, they have a DC uh, line for their washing machine and their dryer. And you can link into that, I gather, and produce a, a, a charge at your home, which is faster than just plugging it into a, a regular outlet. Yes. If, if you buy the converter, the transformer that goes in the garage. But the other thing that is, uh, there was an article, I think, in, in the uh, Washington Post about this. Last week, and of course, this was by somebody who's in this business, he said, the real answer is not charging. The real answer is switching out batteries that uh, you go into a, a place that, and they just, you know, your, your batteries are stackable. They just take the old ones out, put new ones in, you drive away, and then they recharge the, uh, uh, the, the drained ones and then give that to somebody else when they come in. And uh, it raised in my mind the question of, of, the convenience and economics of this, you know, if, if you're a commuter and you're mainly using your car to you go to work and then you drive home at night and you maybe, you know, go drive around in the neighborhood in the weekends, probably plugging it in at home is good enough. You know, uh, if you're an Uber driver uh, and you're spending your whole day stopping for a, a recharge, it might take a couple hours is a significant chunk out of your revenue. Uh, but then again, how many times a week do you have to stop in to, if you're going to have change all your batteries, how many miles does an Uber driver drive a week? I don't know. So, Bill, the key question is, Scott and I have a bet going, and I bet that you are on the list for the new electric Hummer that is coming out. Scott says no. No, I'm, I'm going for the electric Mustang. Electric Mustang. Okay. All right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Bill's, Bill's Mustang, man. This is, this is well established. So I, I lose, but I lose. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be caught anywhere near a Hummer. There. <laughs> yeah. They look pretty cool, the new electric Hummers that they're advertising on TV. So I wonder how, how, how often you have to charge those, like every five minutes or something. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what, what, what's, their, what's their gasoline mileage? Like three miles to the gallon, weren't they? Something like that, Scott? <laughs> something like that. It all depends on load, but yeah, they're, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a whole new world. That's for sure. Whole new world. Speaking of our new world, our COVID world, um, the WTO is very concerned with vaccine supply. Uh, Director General Ngozi spoke about it this week. She is very concerned about scarcity. What is the WTO's role in vaccine supply? Well, ironically, there are some similarities between that and the issue we were just talking about. The WTO can help the distribution of vaccines in multiple ways. One of the easiest things they can do is try to eliminate barriers to the dissemination of vaccine, uh, beginning with tariffs. If anybody's charging a tariff, that would be odd for them to do that. But to try to get countries to eliminate other barriers, uh, I, the obvious one I can think of is sort of health inspections. If, you know, if it's been certified in the UK or certified in Germany, is, is that good enough for Bolivia? Or does Bolivia have to do its own tests? And there's things that sort of facilitating things. But the immediate issue is is different. There has long been a debate in the WTO about uh, licensing production 
of uh, drugs. And there's a special provision in the TRIPS agreement, Trade Related Intellectual Property Agreement, uh, at the behest of developing countries that argued back long before COVID, long before anybody thought about this, that uh, the pharmaceutical companies are holding on to their drugs. Anti-malarial drugs uh, were a, are a classic case, and uh, HIV drugs are a bit the two big areas of, of controversy, and that the pharmaceutical companies charge uh, too much for the drug as a result of which we in our developing countries can't afford it, and people are dying. And the companies need to be forced to uh, license their production to poor countries to further distribute and disseminate uh, these drugs. And the consequence of a debate about this more than 20 years ago, back in the, during, uh, after, during the Uruguay round, was a special provision in TRIPS, which comes up for renewal every few years, but has been consistently renewed at every ministerial agreement when it comes up, that allows developing countries to uh, essentially force licensing of uh, specific kinds of drugs when there's a basically when there's a pandemic or when there's a, a you know a health emergency, if you will, but under you know, under certain limited circumstances, and the companies uh, then are required to you know to license production of of the drug at the request of the country. That's been controversial. The companies are not happy about it. Countries complain that it doesn't work very well. Companies complain that it may not work very well, but there's a lot of fraud associated with it as well, and the countries who have used it. Uh, sometimes have not used it to distribute the drugs to their people, uh, but the drugs have ended up being resold in developed countries for large profits that go in the hands of uh, uh, developing country dictators. So it's been a, con a controversial provision all the way along. Renewing it gets difficult. Uh, developed countries don't want to renew it. Developing countries block other things until the developed countries give in. Um, and it's come to a head now because now you have India and South Africa demanding a more liberal provision specifically for COVID vaccines. And they say we should be able to produce and disseminate these vaccines without regard to uh, the licensing requirements. And uh, the company response and the developed country response, including the U.S., so far, this is the issue for Biden, so far the developed country response, Europe, the U.S., has been you know, there already is this other procedure uh, in TRIPS that I just described, uh, and you can use that. You know, this is a classic case that would be amenable to this. So why do you need some special new thing that will weaken IP protections even further? And I think the, the tip-off here is the demand for this procedure is coming from the Indians and the South Africans who have been blocking almost every step a progressive step the WTO has tried to take for the last 20 years. They don't like IP rules because they don't want to pay the royalties. Uh, and this is one more effort to try to knock down the the, uh, the patent and trademark and, and trade secret rules that the world has erected uh, precisely to allow inventors to to uh, keep the fruits of their of their innovation. But, you know, Biden's caught in the middle. You know, he's got the uh, the Democratic left telling him, go along with the Indians and South Africans, open this stuff up, people are dying. And you've got the pharmaceutical companies and other developed countries saying, you know, there's already a pathway to solve that problem. This is a, a problem that is already solved if the countries would just use the existing procedure. Bill's right about the domestic political dynamics that are going on in the U.S. This is also a problem for the new director general. 
of the WTO. It's an institutional problem. And she has stepped in as a relative rookie in the leadership role to create this conference. And I'm actually concerned about the reputation of the WTO here as much as I am about U.S. decision-making. I personally think when you examine the evidence and you look at this particular disease and this particular production system for vaccines, compulsory licensing is a solution to a problem no one has. All right. What's needed here are more effective distribution methods, not greater volumes of production. In fact, production is is scaling up very nicely, thank you very much, uh, but nobody knows how to distribute. Just look at the, the differences between, say, the UK and, and continental Europe on vaccination rates. And nobody in Europe is raising a question about patent protection here or asking for a license. Okay, so I think the director general has walked into a, a problem here. The tools that she has are not conducive to solving the problem that has been raised. So uh, I think it's a little dangerous. We'll have to watch it. She may be able to finesse this, but... Uh, Wouldn't you give her a little credit, Scott? She was trapped the same place Biden's trapped. She's got the Indians yes. and the South Africans saying, side with us. Uh, and she's got the developed countries saying, no, no, don't pay any attention to them. Uh, she's trying to find a middle ground, which may not succeed. And it may be dangerous, but I'm not sure she had much choice. Well, you're, I think you're right. And, and at least it's an attempt. And she, by, by having this conference that brings all parties together and doesn't dictate an outcome, she's got the room to, to maneuver here. And, uh, but it's an interesting way to start off. It's a, it's a tough job. It's, It'll be uh, a very interesting test of her ability to, to, uh, to twist arms. There's sort of two models here. And it's not zero and 10 on the 10 point scale. It's the difference between four and six on the 10 point scale. But there's, there's the, uh, you know, let the consensus develop and then grab it, uh, which is a more slightly more passive model. And then there's, uh, let me, you know, bend a few elbows, twist a few arms to force the consensus model. There's a lot of evidence that neither of those work very well, but, uh, I think she's more of a ladder model, more of the twist arm. Let's see if we can, you know, all everybody get together and I'll have a lot of conversations. And at the end, they'll come up with something. Whereas I think the previous head, Acevedo, was more of the, you know, let's see what the con countries can do for themselves model. It's an interesting test. It'll be an interesting test for her and an interesting test for the organization. Right. Well, we'll see what she's using. And uh, the key tool she has is she has the convening power. Right. And she has the credibility in the developing world. I think she has the confidence in, in the United States and in the EU. But uh, I think the, the developing world also has confidence. She's, she's from Nigeria. I mean, they... She understands what these countries are going through. Well, we'll have to watch that one. Last thing today, guys, the Gallup poll came out with its annual survey on trade and it had some interesting findings. It found that Americans are far less likely now than they were a year ago to view foreign trade as an opportunity for U.S. economic growth. So 79% uh, thought it was an opportunity in 2020, 63% in 2021. That's the lowest number since uh, 2016. And then this, one in three Americans now view foreign trade as a threat to the U.S. economy. That's almost twice as high as last year. What do you guys think this is all about? Well, it's interesting because, uh, well, first of all, it's just one one point. And uh, so I, I hate to interpret a, try to interpret a trend based on one point. But there was a drop among Republicans, a drop among independents, and basically no change among Democrats. There are two things going on there would be my speculation. 
first, the Republican drop is is a Trumpian drop. They were happier happier with Trump trade policy. Now that he's gone, they're they're less happy. Yeah. With independence, I think it's probably a COVID effect of disruptions and supply chain interruptions and shortages of the past year. And uh, it was in the news a lot in a negative fashion. And uh, so I think that's what's going on. But once again, with a single point, it's hard to say. I was going to attribute the whole thing to COVID, uh, the COVID effect. But I think Scott's right I, I, on the Republican side. It's Trumpian, but it also, in, it's, it, it may be indicative. It's also true. He's exactly right. One, one point doesn't mean a trend. So we need to, you know, look at the next couple iterations of the same poll. They've been asking this since 1992. So, you know, they'll be continue to ask it. But uh, it does raise a uh, question that I've, uh, I think I've written about in, a, in an earlier column, which is the extent to which the parties are changing membership here. You know, and uh, the Republican Party is increasingly becoming the party of the white working class. And these are the people that are hurt by trade or perceive themselves right. as being hurt by trade. And to the extent that they're becoming Republicans and identifying, self-identifying as Republicans and showing up in this poll that way, it, it doesn't surprise me. I guess maybe it, it's always been there, but it's it just sort of changed affiliation a little bit. It's going to be interesting to see what the business community does. Uh, about these issues, because the business community, particularly the large companies, which employ lots of people, have historically been very pro-trade, uh, very free trade, and very Republican, you know, and they're getting increasingly uncomfortable, I think, with the economic policies, uh, or at least the trade policy of the Republican Party. They love their tax policy. When it comes to deregulation and low marginal tax rates, uh, th- th- that's, that's where Republicans and business tend to agree. But international business, there's a, there's a split. And it'll be interesting to see what they do, particularly we're heading into an administration uh, which is maybe more of their liking on trade compared to Trump, but it's going to be much less to their liking on on regulation and tax. It's interesting, too. One of the other findings was is that uh, generational. So 35 to 54 year olds saw an 18 point decline in viewing trade as an opportunity since 2020 and 55 plus year olds, 20 point decline. Uh, the 18 to 34 year old crowd, little change at all. So it's it, it is generational, according to this survey. Well, as Michael Jackson would say, children are our future. Uh, so, <laughs> but look, you, you look at the environment in which young people grew up, where they they were part of the internet, part of the of the the mobile uh, communication devices, essentially from from their own you know inception as young people. Uh, it's not natural that they would embrace the globe to a much greater extent than previous generations. So I think it's a great sign for the future. And it's to- I would totally expect it. The kids who grew up with, with iPhones and social media see the world as a unit more than their parents did. The youth are predictable. The geezers are predictable. Uh, the group in the middle worries me a little bit. Why that yeah. middle-aged cohort is so sharply down uh, concerns me because these are people that are, I think mostly, they're, they're, work- they're part of the working population. Yeah, uh, and it's I I don't know what uh, Scott why why them? Well, I, I think that's where you're seeing a COVID effect because Main Street is, still has not recovered. You know, in a lot of ways, the small businesses are a lot lower output in many places around the country. So I, I think it's I think there's a sense of of concern that that is likely related to the economic downturn associated with with the uh, with the pandemic. A lot of those people lost their jobs. Yes, yes, they did. And, but keep in mind, 63 as a total U.S. number is 
as seeing trade as an opportunity is a lot higher than it was in the you know 20 years ago. 20 years ago, mm-hmm. it was about 48 percent. So 63 is an improvement over that, but the most of that improvement is in young people. So, well, I, you know, I feel a little hurt because you know the trade guys are here to make trade popular, and uh, you know we got a lot of work to do, guys. Maybe we'll stick around and do it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that, there you go. There you go. Well, guys, this has been great. Thank you for all this insight today. And uh, we will be back next week with more trade talk and hopefully some happy talk. Maybe some action. Who knows? Maybe some action. There you go. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.